Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. We want to apologize for the audio quality of this episode and the audio problems that we had in the last couple episodes. We had technical difficulties the day of recording, but we've got them fixed now and we have some great episodes coming up for you. Thanks as always for listening. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories with Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Sean Linehan, former VP of product at Flexport and Village Global Network Leader. Sean, welcome to the program. Great to have <laughs> great to be here. Great to have me. Great to have me. Thank you. Well, yeah. Great to be here. Also, Sean, why don't we start with a bit of your background? How did you come to join Flexport in the first place? What were you hoping to uh, hoping to do there? Well, it, it, it's it's a great story, and part of me wants to believe that this was sort of a genius decision. Right, the company is now quite big, yeah. successful, and in hindsight, I'd like to think that I was a really good picker and I was super intentional when I meant to do this. And the reality is a little less intentional, a little more messy. And it really comes down to the fact that I had this idea that software was going to eat the physical world. This is sort of at the beginning of Uber's rise. And I started thinking, wow, that's really interesting to see how internet technology is now bleeding into the physical world. And I wanted to look at companies that were doing things in that space. And I came across this company, Flexport, uh, actually at a, a startup school event. So in 2013, Ryan was pitching Paul Graham on stage at Startup. Yeah, I saw that. And I remember sitting in this audience and thinking, wow, this business is kind of boring. At the time, it was just a customs brokerage. And uh, the whole idea was that Ryan, in his previous life, had digitized these shipping documents called bills of lading. So he knew every customer uh, in America that was importing products into the United States. And then he started this customs brokerage business that was going to be the sort of turbo tax of customs of customs brokerage. And he was just going to go target this list of customers that he had from his prior business. I thought, wow, it's an incredible company, definitely going to work. Super boring, not interested. But I, they, they started posting these, these hacker news posts, job posts uh, over time after that. And I started watching them and thinking, wow, this company is growing super fast. So I, I started plotting them out and sort of for no good reason. I didn't, I'm not an investor. I wasn't an investor. And I just sort of started recording this company's growth rate because it was interesting. In every job post, they said how many customers they had. So I was sort of plotting this. Um, and at some point, maybe nine, nine months later, I decided that I was going to get a job as previously uh, an entrepreneur and, and running a company that didn't ultimately work. And this was just an obvious choice for me was I, I, I was always super interested in logistics, primarily because it's big stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? You ever go down to the port and just look at those ships? Yeah. Like the fact that this is something that humans made yeah. is insane. Mm-hmm. Like there's very few things that you walk outside in San Francisco and there's these massive, massive buildings. You drive across the bridge and there's these massive, massive bridges. And then you go to the port and there's these things that are just that big, but they move. Right. And this is just like fascinating. Yeah. And so for me, I, I had seen this company. I saw it was growing. I thought it was cool. In the interim between seeing Ryan pitch it on stage at startup school and this time when I'm thinking about getting a job, they had become a freight forwarder, which meant that they were more hands-on in the movement of goods and weren't just sort of grease to the bureaucratic engine as a customs broker. And I thought, wow, like that's something that's worth doing. And even if this company doesn't work, I learned something about global logistics, right. which I had always admired from afar. But as a software guy, right, I'm a software engineer and designer by training, I never expected to work in the world of, of big things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always expected to work in the world of, of microprocessors and, and bits and bytes. And so the ability to work in both of these things was quite an interesting opportunity. And so I joined thinking, well, if it doesn't work, you know, I have this like downside protection, which is I learned something. Yeah. And I don't really care if it doesn't wind up being the big thing right. because I'm just going to go start a business in six months anyways. So I might as well just hang out at this company that I think is, is interesting. Yep. And, and what were the biggest lessons learned? You know, you were there for a few years. What were the biggest lessons learned from that experience that, you know, you'll take with you? You can do things that don't scale for a lot longer than you think. And there's this really interesting fact, which is that software companies tend to obsess over automation. They tend to obsess over every single little detail. Uh, and if you can't automate something, then you shouldn't do it, right? We sort of have this, uh, it's like a, a cult of, of simplicity around 
the types of things, I think based on the types of things that Twitter did, Instagram did, Facebook did, the consumer tech did. And when you're working in enterprise software or you're working in this intersection between the physical world and the digital world is that this obsession with simplicity is still a wonderful ideal, but it can't be held as a rigorous doctrine because when it comes to enterprises and when it comes to the physical world, you know, you might have to do something that's not scalable as table stakes. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? There's plenty of 10, 20, $50 billion businesses that are publicly traded that are run on people and not run purely on software. And so what I, what I took away from my experience at Flexport more than anything is that we're entering this new wave where technology entrepreneurs aren't afraid to get their hands dirty. They're not afraid to run an operationally intense business and they're not striving to build just a software company. They're striving to build a company that's run by software and the principles of software, but are willing to adapt the strategies that have been tried and true over the last 200 years in American economies. And you've seen that, like you see that with Flexport, you see that with other companies like Open Door or even Zenefits, um, where they're just not afraid to use people where people are necessary. Yeah. The software meets the physical world thesis. Why don't you unpack that thesis and talk about where are some areas that you think it could apply? Yeah, well, Mark and Jason obviously famously made the, the claim that software is going to eat the world. And I think he's right, but not necessarily in the way that you might imagine, right? So a lot of people are afraid of AI eating the entire world, or they're afraid of robots eating all the jobs. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's truth in that. There's going to be work that humans currently do uh, in the physical world that will be done by robots. Right? You see this with uh, one really interesting company that just came out was Built Robotics. They're doing these autonomous, uh, I think they're tractors for like earth movers. Uh, really cool company. And you see this also with companies like, uh, I think they're called Komatsu, a Japanese company that does these, these, these mining rigs that are autonomous. This work that used to be done by humans and is now done by software. And I think you'll see a lot of that. But there's also this whole other category, which is, you know, software becomes the middle manager. And as the middle manager, it has a second-order impact on the world. So think about Uber. Uber drivers are independent contractors and don't have a boss. But they do have a boss. That boss just isn't a person. That boss is a piece of software. And this, to me, is very, very, very interesting, is that you have this system set up that controls vehicles, mm-hmm. but it controls vehicles through a person. This is kind of a dystopian view of how this works. It sounds a little creepy, right? Like your boss is a piece of software. You're something which obviously doesn't have empathy or anything else. Um, but in a, in a different respect, it's really that one company is able to optimize such a massive system in the whole physical world by being a piece of software that manages hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people in Uber's case. So I think you'll see a lot more of that right, is how does software grease the wheels of the physical world through information and people management, right? At Flexport, for example, uh, humans and, and our employees are a huge piece of making the company successful, right? We, we have people that are extremely smart and extremely talented at every layer, and they're doing things like operations, uh, they're doing things like customer service, they're doing things like sales, and we would consider ourselves one of these experiences or one of these companies where software is eating the physical world despite the fact that we have so many humans, because the, the, the work, the fundamental work is orchestrated by software. Mm-hmm. And we take software principles of being agile and iterating based on data and apply that to people, right? And in some regard, this is, this is like a, you know, this is a hundred year tradition, right? Starting with Taylorism back in the early 20th century, where you have, you know, these time motion studies of people doing sort of mechanical work. How, how was the best way to strike this hammer down? Was the best place to turn that screw? And, you know, that was sort of fell out of fashion uh, because it's, it, it's a bit weird to treat humans as robots, mm-hmm. thankfully. Uh, but we're sort of now doing this again, but with a much more empathetic approach, right? We're taking a design-driven approach to say, how do we optimize people's work while also optimizing their happiness and life satisfaction? Yeah. Uh, but we're using the same techniques that yeah. came about in the 20th century. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, one of the uh, tweet I had recently was uh, something like what Uber and Airbnb did is they turned uh, idle assets into, you know, things you can use and make money off of, you know, the car in Uber's case and, and your spare bedroom in Airbnb's case. But that the most valuable idle assets are, are people in some sense, um, especially you know, people internationally who aren't being used to the full potential. And I got a lot of blowback uh, from people who were like, 
yeah, but people aren't cars. <laughs> people aren't people aren't spare bedrooms, and we can't think of you know being uh, you know using people in this way. Or, how do you sort of explain some of this? It's pushback to the idea that uh, you know I think it's somewhat related, but when you think about people and cases like being utilized or being optimized in some sense. Well, one of the broad facts of the modern world is that we have built these layers of abstraction on top of human behavior that when you think about them objectively are very cold and uncomfortable, right? If you look back to the history of the corporation, right? corporations have been around for a long time, but they didn't become truly legally accessible or in vogue until the middle of the 19th century, thereabouts. And what it's, it was very interesting is that people never accepted corporations as this wonderful invention. They always thought that they were weird and creepy, and yet they wound up becoming wildly successful anyways. You have to ask this question, well, why? What was so weird and creepy about them in the first place? And the, the, the thing that I've come to think about is that corporations are weird because they're immoral, right? And they have this agency, or at least this perceived agency, but they're not flesh and being beings, right? It's sort of the first act of God is we've created this entity that exists that doesn't die, and that's really uncomfortable for us. Now, it's obviously, of course, not a true living, breathing thing, right? right? It's more like a like a psychosocial entity, the thing mm-hmm. that only exists in our minds. But nevertheless, it's 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 quite strange. And when you start to think about other parts of the modern world, in particular, selling our labor, and particularly with respect to selling it with in chunks of time, this is a thing that we do all day, every day, yeah. right? Everybody does this, right? With salaries, it's even worse, as you actually sell like a, in your entire time. Right? You, don't, you don't even sell a discrete piece of your time; you just sell your whole all of it. Yeah. Right, with no formal agreement on how much time that actually is. And but when you when you talk about it in the terms that you're talking about it, is it sounds uncomfortable, yeah. right? If you're somebody who is working four hours a day part time, you are in some description an underutilized asset. Yeah. Calling a person an underutilized asset doesn't feel so good. <laughs> so I, I think that you know, there, I think there's insight to be gained from right. thinking in terms of in, in terms that make other people uncomfortable yeah. because it's it's the reality, right? If you wanted to go and start a company in this space, I, I would recommend not saying we're, we're going to increase the utilization of human yeah. capital, just because one, right. most people don't understand what that means, and, and two, it's it's a bit yeah. cold. Going back to these uh, you know, software statistical world businesses, we've talked about how some of the playbooks that built the original consumer, uh, big consumer product, you know, businesses we know today, won't necessarily work, and that new playbooks will have to be written. Why don't you talk about why they won't work and what those new playbooks might look like? Yeah, well, in, you know, there's something really interesting in operationally intensive businesses, which is that you, you wind up with a, a company that, with respect to the mix of employees, looks very different than the old school software companies. So when I joined Flexport, I joined as the fourth software engineer, but I was the 20th employee. And when I tell people that, they think, well, what the heck were all those other people doing at this early stage software company? that were not software engineers. And the reality is, is that it just wasn't an early stage software company, mm-hmm. right? It was an early stage logistics company run by software. Mm-hmm. The, the, the implications of this are, are quite profound, right? Because what software engineers would like to think is, oh, oh, those, those, you know, operations people are here to, to fill the gaps where I haven't yet productized things, where I haven't yet done my job. They, they, they need to do what I tell them to do. And the operations people, on the other hand, are, might be inclined to say, Oh, well, the, the software engineers should really be doing the automation that I have yet, or that, that, that I don't want to do. Do the work that I don't want to do, leave me with the work that I do want to do. And in some regard, both of these are correct. But balancing the emotions and the narrative within the company to say, well, which of these matters in which case is very different. So this is, this is, it's really interesting is as you extrapolate out, you wind up with this, with this company that just looks so, so, so shockingly different is that the operations team is likely to grow quite a lot faster than the software team. So at any given moment, your company is predominantly not technical people. Ideally, if you're hiring well and and you're in a space where it's possible, you're hiring people who have a technical mind or at least have been indoctrinated into startup thinking such that you're not having to do that too much yourself. Um, But it is very different. And one one thing that, again, to uncomfortable conversations is the the wages of people in operations or, or data entry or anything like that are quite a lot less than software engineers or or designers or product managers, which it it, it presents a challenge 
Because, for example, if you want to give out free lunches, if you have a company that's 80% software engineers, the lunch, while a significant expense, is a relatively insignificant expense compared to their salary. But if you're talking about you know, a minimum wage or, or slightly above minimum wage employee that's doing safe data entry, there's somebody who you respect, who you care about, who you really want to, to succeed at your firm and ideally have growth opportunities in the future. No matter how you slice it, a free lunch is actually very expensive when compared to their salary. Mm-hmm. And so you start to be forced with or faced with these decisions culturally that other companies might not uh, be able to, might not have to be forced with. Right? So you have to ask yourself, like, what type of company are we? Are we an operations company? Are we a software company? How do we treat people? How do you prevent yourself from creating a two-tier society? Right. Which you absolutely don't, you don't want to do, right? You yeah. want to make sure that people feel like they're all in one family. And so this is just, this is one example that's, that's quite difficult. Yeah. It also informs how you launch new businesses, right? If you're a software company, you might launch an MVP that's all software. That's very simple. If you're an operations business, you might just send off one or two of your best operators and say, go try to sell this, go try to figure it out. Right. And just do this manually because yeah. we're not afraid to do things manually. Right. And is there any business that has sort of made these playbooks that others are following or is everyone really just building from scratch? I think we're figuring it out as we go, right? One of the things that I, I feel like we're in a pretty interesting and important place in history. Uh, it reminds me sort of of how the early industrial revolution happened. So to, to, to zoom way back, before the Industrial Revolution, there was sort of experiments in, in manufacturing technology that started really in the American armories. And in the American armories, you had these guys that were, that were basically high-craft European artisans, or at least following the European tradition of artisanship, where they, they were making guns, and they were like hand-fitting them, they were grinding them down, they were trying to make all of the different pieces of the gun fit perfectly into one coherent whole. But one thing that it's it's almost mind-blowing to think about now is if you had two guns that came out of the same facility and you looked at them side by side, they'd look close enough to the same. But if you were to, say, remove the barrel from one, one gun and try to put it on the other, it, it wouldn't fit. Is that the pieces of manufactured goods pre, say, 1820 or so, uh, maybe a bit, a bit after that, were just not interchangeable. Right, like the biggest innovation in the 19th century was perfecting the art of interchangeability. And it was on this platform that once you had interchangeability, you started to be able to do other things like uh, assembly lines. And a lot of the things that allowed interchangeability to happen in the first place was improved instruments and uh, gauges and fixtures, things that held things uh, precisely in place and measured things precisely. Uh, and that then led to the actual like mechanisms that allowed for full-scale industrialism. I feel like we're in a similar place here with respect to productizing what I would describe as otherwise professional services, right? Is that we're taking businesses like freight forwarding, like in the case of Zafits, insurance, in the case of open door real estate right, and, and, and realty, and we're taking these professional services and learning how to productize them. And each of us are sort of advancing the art just the way that there was all these businesses that came about in the 19th century that were advancing the art of industrialism. Right. Is that there was no one firm that perfected it. Is it was really this sort of interesting sociological thing. Yeah. And what's fascinating to me is that you actually had talent that came out of the armories and eventually went into the manufacturing of, of everything. First with sewing machines and after sewing machines it was like reapers and after reapers it was like loons or something like that. Um, and you basically had this talent that was bouncing between firms and every next firm they went to, they perfected the art a little bit more. And so I think you see that we had at Flexport people that came out of Zenefits and they had all types of stories to tell, right? Or came out of Gusto. They had all types of stories to tell about, oh, how we tried to automate that type of human task there and it didn't work. Let's try it a different way here. Right. And you'll see people leave Flexport and, and go to other companies, the next generation of operationally intense companies and, and move the state of the art just a little bit further as well. Yeah. What do you think about this trend towards managed marketplaces? Jason put out a piece recently, Bill Gurley sort of, I think had a tweet recently, which was like, can someone explain managed marketplaces to me? Because that seems more like a market entry rather than a marketplace. What do you, what do you think is you start with the honor, I guess, what we like these managed marketplaces? I love managed marketplaces. I mean, I think about Flexport as a managed marketplace. Uh, it was one of the mental models that I used to, to try to help shape the product strategy. And the, the thing that, I, I mean, clearly it's true that a, a managed marketplace 
is really just a fancy way to say that you work in a particular business, right? Like, let's take, for example, the promotional products industry. Lots of people in the promotional products industry, promotional product companies don't, don't manufacture goods, right? Promotional products companies are every, literally every single one of them are managed marketplaces. They have a thousand or, or end vendors underneath them. They're a single point of contact. They sell that the, basically this management service to customers. Promotional products companies people don't understand are, are, people, are companies that make like branded water bottles and t-shirts and pencils and whatever else. Yeah, this is a managed marketplace. No one calls it a managed marketplace. You just call it a promotional products company. Mm-hmm. And so you really, I mean, it, it, I think the thing that makes these things unique is that the companies are attempting to do the types of things that, you know, a promotional products company might do at just tremendous scale, yeah. right? Is how do you take what otherwise would be sort of like wheeling and dealing on the back end and scale that? How do you create the one system of management and governance in this vertical that applies to the whole world, right? Uber did this very interestingly, is that they took, you know, a taxi company is, is a managed marketplace. A trucking broker is a managed marketplace, right? But if you, what we really mean when we talk about this is not, you know, creating a brokerage layer or a commoditization layer. Because what we mean is that we're going to do this and we're going to do such a tremendous, massive, humongous scale, global scale, take the whole business, eat the whole industry, right? Like this is an attempt to make a winner take all market in every market. It's because the criticism of venture marketplace at the time were sort of margins. And what, what separates the, the sort of spaces that are right to have a venture marketplace be a great business versus spaces that are difficult? Margins are a funny game, right? Because depending on the managed marketplace, you, you might fall under different rules per gap, which is just the generally accepted accounting principles, where your GMV is your revenue, right? So this then creates this like weird perception where people say, oh, your, your margins are so low. Well, true in some regard, right? But also who cares? Right. Is if your margins are, are very slim on a trillion dollars, not that there's anybody doing that, but if your margins are really slim on a trillion dollars, as an investor, I'm indifferent. Right. Uh, the, the thing that you do care about is the margin of error. Right. Like if your business slips a little bit and your margins are small, that's, that's quite dangerous. But you know, there's, I think there's lots of businesses that are right for a managed marketplace. There's a general trend in business to be not local, not even regional, but to be national and even global. Now, if you're in a business that's national or global, it would be quite convenient if your vendors were also national or global. But some things are necessarily local. They're on the ground, right? Like if you, for example, want a delivery service, you need somebody who's physically present in every region that you want to deliver. Mm-hmm. Well, this is where managed marketplaces come in, is they come in and they, on the sales side, aggregate supply and provide this national vending service. Right. They're able to come, go to, to, to national or global companies and say, Hey, don't worry about managing 10,000 vendors around the world or even 50. Just work with me. And I will in turn manage all of the people on the ground. You could own those businesses outright, or you could figure out some really interesting Amazon marketplace style way to manage those vendors. But you provide this simplicity to the, to the buyer of just being a single point of contact. So any business where you see an increasing amount of national or global players, if you're able to create a managed marketplace around one of their key business inputs, my guess is that you'd be quite successful. Yeah. And let's back up a little bit. You were talking about <clears throat> rising industrialization. You know, one of the things I, I know about you is from knowing you is that you've spent a lot of time really trying to understand the history of, of different industries and, and how they've emerged. Why don't we talk about some of the lessons you've learned from, from, from putting in that time and why you recommend others do the same. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I'll start with why, why do this at all. Uh, I, I do it primarily because I'm, I'm curious, right? You look around in, in your real physical world and there's things that are just strange and you have to ask yourself, well, how, how did that happen? Right. How did we get to, to here? Or things are marvelous, right? Like for example, if you're, if you're driving down the highway, and let's say you're on, you're on I-5 cruising down to Southern California and you're, you're in the middle of nowhere and you're looking out and you're thinking, man, so beautiful, so empty out here. 95% of the time, it is not empty. One, you're on a road. That's super interesting. Super huge, massive construction project. There's likely to be telephone poles within line of sight and there might even be a railroad. Also, it's all farmland, right? Like it's not empty, right? Right? Like you're literally driving on the infrastructure of society 
and you're looking out at the infrastructure of society. And it is empty. It's beautiful. It's like literally like it's just not a lot of, of urban or suburban development when you're when you're doing this. But I ask myself the question like, wow, how did we wind up networking all of this like physical property? How did that happen? Where did the railroads come from? Where did the roads come from? How did agriculture develop? Where, where how the heck did we wind up with telephone lines and electricity poles spanning the entire country? And I just I, I get obsessed with these things because it's interesting, yeah. right? Like we talk about the network effects of of Facebook or of of Google or any of the yeah. modern companies and. I think it's really wonderful, but you can't really get a full visualization of that. Right. But you can look at the electricity network. You yeah. can look at the telephone network and the road network, and you can measure it in miles and tons and human labor expended to build it. And it's cool. Yeah. This is cool. Yeah. Right. And like we take these things for granted. And if you go back in history and see what was life like before these things existed, all of a sudden you go, my, my God, like thank God these things exist. Right. You look at roads, for example. Most people never visited a city, period. They stayed in their local town because they couldn't get anywhere. They didn't have cars, they had horse-drawn carriages, and their roads were crap, right? Like, it used to be that going across America was a treacherous journey and most people died. It's really not the case, right? Like, now we blast around the whole world in jets. How'd that happen? It happened quick, right? hundred years. We went from going across the country is deathly to you can go anywhere in the world, catch a ride, talk to people, eat food, not die, all's good, get back home within two days. It's amazing. And so like, I, I just become obsessed with learning about these things because it's cool. Right. But what I've learned, it's, it always shocks me. Like I, my, my girlfriend makes fun of me. I, I sit there and laugh as I read history books <laughs> because it's just it, these people were experiencing the same struggles that we experience. They learned the same lessons that we learn, right? We have these sort of like modern day pseudoscience philosophers on Twitter preaching all this stuff like do things that don't scale. Great advice. Yeah. <laughs> love this advice. Like I love reading this type of stuff. But it's, you know, it's not new knowledge. This has been discovered 100 years ago, 150 years ago. The same business models that work now worked at the advent of the corporate age. And this, to me, is not, it's not sad. It's like, it's wonderful. It means that these things are learnable. You can figure out how the world works, how, how, how companies work, how business works, how competitive advantage is developed. And you can apply it. It's not like wizardry. This is not like luck. This is skill. It is a learnable skill. Right. Let's get into some of the history. First, you were talking earlier, the rise of the corporation. Uh, you said it had been around for a while, but only started getting used all of a sudden in the 19th century, 20th century. What, what precipitated the rise of the, what, why did it all of a sudden start being, become popular? Yeah, well, I, I'm not, you know, I don't know the full history of the corporation, but if you go back there, there was like the Dusty, Dutch East India Trading Company. There was the, uh, Mississippi Valley Company, I think it was what it was called. These were really, uh, nation state, or sovereign-granted monopolies, right? That was where corporations originally started. And some of those corporations continue to exist, right? It's interesting. But when you fast-forward up until, say, the 19th century, like the mid-1800s, this is where you start to see corporations really get on the rise. And, you like, the thing that I think actually caused this was just it became a necessity, right? So this is the time that railroads started to get developed. And railroads were a tremendously expensive endeavor, perhaps the most expensive endeavor that humans had, had really embarked on, uh, and particularly had embarked on in the private market. Like railroads weren't built by the government. Railroads were built by, by, by people. But there was almost nobody that was rich enough. In fact, there was nobody that was rich enough to fully finance a functional railroad. Even even partnerships of the richest men, uh, and they were predominantly men, uh, in, in the time, even partnerships weren't enough money. And so this corporate structure of going out and raising money from the public and pooling risk across very large portions of people became necessity. And so it was like, on one part, it was, it was actually, you, you could look back and say, oh, this is, a, this is a legal thing, is that corporations used to not be granted legally and that there was some liberalization in the laws surrounding corporations and what it took to get a charter. And you'd be correct. But that didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened because there was this need for the corporation. Is that if it was not possible to pull together sufficient capital to build a railroad, to build a massive steamship business, though Vanderbilt did, did in fact do that, um, to build U.S. steel, for example, right? Like that came later. But the, these these businesses, the rise of industrialization, just required capital in excess of what any individual or small partnership could provide. What industries have you? read a lot about and really familiarize yourself with. You mentioned, you know, steel, railroad, 
let's, let's go into a couple. What, what can we learn from the, the rise of, of shipping? Yeah, well, I mean, so this one, this one's really fascinating because if the, 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 the character that I would focus on here in antiquity, well, modern antiquity, which is like the 19th century, not that far back, mm-hmm. would be Cornelius Vanderbilt, right? This is a guy, not educated guy, sort of a brute that started a business on, I think it was uh, Long Island that was basically just building ferries back and forth from New York City to Long Island. And that was really his whole business. And he started there opened up basically this route between uh, the island and, and, and New York City. And that wound up building quite a lot more economic activity between these places. And he took that idea and then started applying it all up and down the coast. If you look up and down the New York coast, there's all these little ports. And Vanderbilt likely had a role in, in opening a lot of those ports in the first place. And what, what happened was really fascinating is he wound up reducing the time it took to travel from most of the Northeast to New York City um, from weeks to like days or in some cases just like a day. And this speed at which people could travel also meant that the speed at which information could travel just totally changed the economy, right? It became a much more dynamic society as a result of the, his, him, him opening up the, these shipping lanes. Right. And if you do this, you sort of can take the shipping and say, okay, well, like, what about railroads or, or, or air freight or air transportation or anything else? This basically is the same thing that you see is when you open up fast, safe, cheap transportation between two places, you fundamentally change what life looks like in those places, right? You get a greater abundance of goods. You get a greater flow of information so that market prices stabilize, right? Arbitrage opportunities disappear and people get a fairer market price. You see a specialization of labor. You see goods move to the places where uh, they're best manufactured, right? Or there's a comparative advantage between two places, and everybody gets richer. This is what you see. And you see this not just in the northeast of America. You saw the same thing happen when shipping routes were opened between the East Coast and San Francisco, which was first via boat through uh, South America, also Vanderbilt, uh, opened those up. And then also once you started to see railroads across the country, or even between inter- inter- places in between the country, is that the country itself as it became more physically networked, became far more prosperous. We then, you know, as the 20th century project did this as a society with the whole world, we opened up uh, trade relations with, with the East, you know, China and increasingly Southeast Asia. And this made everybody around the entire globe much richer. Right. Clearly there, there's people that are, are still not entirely out of poverty. There, there's lots of bad things that happen as a result of that, right? Like there, there's lots of, tragedy as well, but on the net, billions upon billions of people are now living relatively prosperous lives, but they otherwise likely wouldn't, right? Like if you even look, one thing that blows my mind is you look at population sizes, like exponential growth really, even if you study exponential growth all day long, it's hard to reason about. If you look back at 1900, there was only a billion people on the planet and most of them were in dire poverty. We now have you know, 7.8 billion people on the planet or something like that, and very few of them are in dire poverty. In fact, less people on an absolute basis are in poverty than back then, despite having seven, eight X the population. Wow. Like to me, this is, this is truly incredible. And a big part of this, not the only part, of course, the world is quite complex, but a big part of this was the rise of fast, cheap, reliable transportation. It's interesting that, you know, you learn about the rise of industry. You also, you know, on the economic perspective, also gives you insight into, you know, international relations or policy. Like, it's also interconnected. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think of myself somewhat uh, derogatively as, like, a dilettante. Right? Yeah. Like, I sort of bounce around between all these topics. I'm not yeah. academically trained in history. I'm not yeah. academically trained in, in economics. But if you, if you have a curious mind, you can't help yourself but go and dive into these things. Right. Right? Like, you can't help yourself but draw connections between things that are interesting or confusing or, or, or fascinating or whatever it might yeah. be. You just, you sort of find, find yourself diving into these topics. But like, I think it's, it's somewhat similar to, like, crypto people. Yeah. Crypto people are so smart because yeah. they, they started to pull at this string of, well, what's money? Yeah. And when you pull at that string, you go <laughs> deep. Yeah. You can't help yourself. Yeah. You, I mean, it reminds me something of like the philosophers of the 19th century right. or the early 18th century, right? Like you look at um, 
Max Weber, or you look at, at, at Karl Marx, people who I don't necessarily agree with right. philosophically, but these guys invented sociology in order to make their arguments. <laughs> they invented sociology. They traveled the world. They like, it, like they, where they became anthropologists. They studied the classics in order to make their philosophy. Right. I feel like this is something that we're seeing with crypto people is that crypto people are some of the most expansive right. thinkers because they have to is because this thing that they're doing is so confusing and complicated and entrenched in history, yeah. the history of people and, and societies and money that they're trying to figure it out. Yeah. But, but most crypto people haven't, you know, we've both gotten another rabbit hole we talked about, it, but they haven't, you know, read it, you know, history of steel, history of railroads, oil, shipping. Are there any learnings from there that sort of uniquely tied to crypto in some way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like the rise of corporations, yeah. I, I think is really interesting. So, you know, that, like, corporations are founded really as a fundraising scheme. It sounds like ICOs, doesn't it? Right? And founding a corporation and raising money from the public is difficult. Doing so across nation state borders is in some cases impossible. So, Crypto and, and the ICO boom, not to say that I, I'm a proponent of the insane yeah. speculation that went on, but that as a social technology for fundraising, yeah. I think is really interesting, right? I think it's, it's interesting not just because, you know, a bunch of people got rich real quick. I don't think that was interesting at all. I think that this as a social technology for global capital fundraising is very interesting. Right. And if you're able to raise money from all of America, you can build the railroads. If you can raise money from the entire world, what can you build? Right. I don't know, but I bet it's something cool. Yeah. Right. Like you have the ability to pool a amount of money that was his, that has historically not been possible. Right. right. Like if you even look at these ICOs, you have speculators, which is a small portion of people yeah. investing in things that make honestly no sense, and they raise tremendous sums of money. Right. Now, what's going to happen when you take somebody that's building something truly valuable at a global scale that does make sense using right. this technology? You're going to see the most insane fundraising ever. You think Masayoshi is is right. doing interesting things. Wait till you see the ICOs of 2030. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. I mean, a lot of this also depends on sort of legal compliance and how the law evolves. How have these industries in the past, the ones that you studied, sort of wrestled with the, the laws of the time and and helped evolve those laws or worked with government in those ways? It's it's a fun one, right? Is it's it's one of those things where it, it's always a give and take, right? In in some cases the law is useful, and in other cases it's not. Sometimes it oversteps. Sometimes it it doesn't do enough. So I, I don't think that they're you know all of these things really based are based on context, right? Who are the people that are leading these companies? What things have gone wrong, and what is there a, like a, a feasible way for the market to solve them? So, for example, like the thing that I, I look back at is you, you look at the early rise of stock markets, and you had you had people like Jay Gould, who was by every by every standard the most zero sum thinker, awful person, right? He he literally invented most of the market manipulation technologies, right? He invented the pump and dump and fraud and all of these other awful things. I'm, I'm not an expert on, on Jay Gould, but when when you look at these, you go, well, at the time, it wasn't illegal. But from my perspective, it was still pretty unethical. Yeah. Right? And there was no foreseeable way to solve these problems in the market because it was so profitable. And there was this, this massive information asymmetry. And discovering that somebody was doing this was very difficult. That the law came in and, and solved that. And that was probably a good thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. getting rid of insider trading is probably a good thing. You can make arguments that, that, that it should exist, like, more power to you. And I just generally think that it's good that we've gotten rid of that pump and dumps and fraud and all these other things. But, you know, somebody had to go exploit that first. Right. And I think that that in general is a, a good, a good method, right? Mm-hmm. You sort of let things go and see what happens and solve the problems as they arise. I think there is a tendency in the modern world to try to solve problems before they've ever happened which is valiant and, and I get that, right? Like we want to avoid loss of life. We want to avoid massive loss of property. These are things that are, are just like tautologically good things. Yeah. Nobody thinks there should be more death, right? Like the, the, the question is it, for me is if we try to regulate things too soon in their life cycle, uh, are we going to cause the, the, are we basically going to stunt innovation because we're trying to solve problems that we don't necessarily even know exist yet? 
right? Like generally, I think about this much the same way that I think about bureaucracy and company building, right? If you're somebody that is building a startup and it's growing really fast, you might think, oh man, I should go implement Google's process because it's so good. Look at how good Google is. I'm good too. It's likely a mistake, right? Right. You want to implement process to solve the problems you have, not the problem that somebody else had in a totally different context. And regulation feels much the same to me. I'm not a policy expert, but you know, it's often the case that you think, well, this happened in this other industry. Let's just get ahead of it. Who's to say it's going to happen in this industry, right? Like there's some level of foresight that you can have, but we don't want to try to get too clever. Yep. Right. Like let's see where things go. Yep. As you sort of study, you know, enormous businesses that or businesses that became enormous in the 19th century, how do you compare them or contrast them to businesses that become enormous today? And then what sort of patterns or trends do you see? They're all network effects businesses. All. Right. The thing that I think is interesting uh, to, to today versus in the past is that there's in the past the the monopolies that were built in the early 20th century utilized coercion. They really did, right? They went out and they forced their competition to join with them, or they bludgeoned them, right? Personally, I don't think that's that that's the right. really functional market, right? Like, I, I don't believe. That you know, monopoly monopolies at all costs are good. Also, don't think that all monopolies are bad, right? right? I think that they're they're. I think that like monopolism is a bad thing. It's, it's overblown, but also you know, it's like it depends on how how you wind up there and, and how dynamic the market is, right? And so today's businesses, I mean, we, it was super consensual, right? It's like I opted to use Facebook, I opted to use Google, I opted to use Windows back in the day, um, and I think that that's you know that's fine. It's like these businesses are are massive. They're massive because they provide extraordinary amounts of value. It's all consensual. It's not, not, it's not coercive. Um, and they've managed to get big and continue to win through network effects, just the same way that these other businesses did. Now, what's interesting is that the, the, the network effects are sort of on different sides this time, right? It's demand side network effects that, that built these massive businesses, the, the, the modern day massive businesses. Whereas in industrialism, it was what, what I sometimes call supply-side network effects, which is just uh, economies of scale, right? Where your physical footprint and the scale of your operations is what allowed you to continue to win and reinforce your dominant position. Right? Like, yeah. I don't know, I don't often hear people describe these two things as the same thing, but economies of scale and demand-side network effects are, are effectively equivalent. Right? Right. It's just, is this inside or outside the business? Yep. But does it change? Is, is there a sort of thing of you know, this time is different in terms of how we should regulate it? Because demand side seems much more difficult to, to disrupt. I think it's actually much easier to disrupt, right? If like the, the, the quintessential example is power, right? Is that we had to regulate the, the power companies because it just, they have a natural monopoly, right? Is it just not feasible to have five competing power companies? Now, what I think is really interesting here, actually, is that it turns out that it is possible to compete with the power companies, right? We're doing it with distributed solar, right? We're doing it with, with, with wind. We're doing it with renewables. And this is interesting. It took a hundred years, mind you, to get from, you know, the, the development of the first couple substations to now we actually have a competitive market. So the regulation in the interim is probably a useful thing. But in, on the demand side, I actually think these, these network effects are very fragile, hmm. right? Innovation goes so fast, so, so fast that, yeah, regulate Facebook for, for what, right? It's like Facebook already got disrupted by Instagram and they got lucky that they bought that business, right? right. Wonderful, wonderful foresight on Mark Zuckerberg's part buying Instagram for a billion dollars. But, you know, Facebook died. It's right. not totally dead, obviously. Yeah. It has a billion users still. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But Instagram is, is very clearly about to take the throttle, mm-hmm. right? Who's to say that that's not going to happen again? Right, the, the, we're talking about consumers making active choices. Right. If as a consumer I don't like this thing, I can change. Right. Like I've seen the rise of Telegram happening. Yeah. Right. You've probably seen it too. These things just happen so swiftly. Right. I think Google is in a more dominant position. Um. But yeah, look, like they they wound up having to go and like massively pivot into mobile just as fast as everybody else did. Right. And they got again amazing a strategic move on their on their part to actually succeed in doing that. But you know the fact that they are a leader in they were a leader in web and they're a leader in mobile was was not guaranteed. 
it's more or less just good strategy. Right. And there, there will be more shifts. Yeah. And these companies are not immortal, right? right. What about Amazon? Amazon's interesting. I, I don't think that they should be regulated at all, right? Like they are a small percentage of commerce and people can flee quickly, right? Like <laughs> the, the, their monopoly position is vastly overblown. Right. Vastly overblown, right? Be, and, and I'll tell you why is that you see all of their, what is claimed as their competitive advantages rapidly getting quote unquote democratized, right? The, the logistics backend. Well, Flexport's helping with this, right? If you want to get really good at moving things around the world, as swiftly, efficiently, cheaply as possible, you use Flexport. Amazon doesn't have an advantage relative to Flexport in international logistics. So that advantage is struck down. You see fulfillment centers. Amazon has a huge head start in fulfillment centers. But that network effect is not infinite. The more you have, there is, in fact, a saturation point. Right. So if you build 50 fulfillment centers around the world, you are approximately good enough to compete with Amazon with respect to fulfillment centers. And you're seeing third parties come out and, and try to do this. You see things like ShipBob and others that are, that are coming up and saying, hey, we're going to build the Amazon-style uh, fulfillment center backend so you can compete on delivery speeds. Right? So what Amazon did very intelligently was they identified what the key success factors were going to be in e-commerce, and they went and built it first. And as a result, they've won you know, half of the online market and 10% of overall retail or something absurd. But that's not a long-term durable moat that can't be can't be wrestled with, right? I think it, it's for every dollar that goes onto the internet, Amazon takes fifty percent. No, that means fifty percent goes to somebody other other people too, right? right? Like they might not be in some regard, like they're going to be massive, huge. They're not going to go away. But I don't think that that we as consumers don't have choice there. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I don't think there's any harm in yeah. what they've done. Yeah. If you were starting a uh, venture firm today. Um, what would your thesis be, or, or if you could pick any, you know, the sectors in which you're investing in and great entrepreneurs are building businesses in, what sectors might you most be, be most excited about? Would it be software meets the physical world? What would your thesis sector interest be? It would be software meets the physical world, just because I think it's interesting, right? I think I, I as a human, could be helpful right. to people that are building these types of businesses, and I think that it's going to be a massive um Growth, growth opportunity yeah. for the rest of the world. So, right? what like, are example sectors? Well, I, I think manufacturing is really interesting. And you know, one thing that that is lost in the, the the broad political narrative is the fact that the United States is the world's second largest manufacturing power. Hmm. Massive, twelve million people employed in U.S. manufacturing, perhaps even more. And you know, what, what blows my mind is that you know we we sort of have this obsession over finished goods manufacturing. Well, you, the United States actually manufactures so many incredibly valuable things, right? So take, for example, the number of people employed in manufacturing in the United States versus the number of people employed in manufacturing in Indonesia. They're about the same number of people. The market value of the products we produce in the United States is 10 times the value of the market value produced in Indonesia. It's really fascinating. Per human working in manufacturing here, we have 10x leverage over the rest of the world. That's because we're just manufacturing very expensive things, right? We're manufacturing pharmaceuticals, we're manufacturing oil, we're manufacturing similar to computer chips, right? We've taken all of the profit pools and kept it here. Um, but what that means is that there's all these industries, like $2 trillion worth of business happening in manufacturing that is not necessarily being addressed by the technology sector. And I, I think that these are places where you might see some, some vertical startups or some managed marketplaces is, is going into the manufacturing sector and trying to figure out how do you best do distribution, mm-hmm. right? Like how do you take software and internet uh, technologies and, and go and build better distribution models in these older businesses? And on the other side, on the supply side, say, how do you take the new advances in sensor technology and the fact that every person can have a phone in their hand and, and make the operations far more efficient on the ground. Yeah. So these are things that I just think are interesting, right? It's like, it's clear that there's massive profit pools there. Could software be useful there? Yeah. The answer, of course, is yes, because their, their software is already useful in all these places. Everybody uses email, right? Everybody yeah. uses project management tools. There's, there's, there's ERPs and stuff that people use on the back end as well. But can we take more share, right? Can the technology sector take more share of the value? Yep. What's a, what's another sector? What are other sectors? One that I, I, I've seen a lot of people doing quite well in is, is staffing. Staffing firms, I think, are on the rise. And this, this to me is a, an interesting trend. 
because it, it, it basically there's this thing called uh, like a cost, cost theorem, cost theorem, which is basically the theory that businesses wind up having internal departments due to excessive transaction costs if a service were to be offered in the marketplace, right? Like you have a design team inside your company because if you were to try to outsource design, then it might be difficult, right? Or you have, they obviously design needs to be outsourced and it's yeah. not sort of come inside, um, partly because we now need to care about our users so much that the transaction cost of working with a new design firm is, is very high. And what I think you're seeing is I'm seeing, you're seeing like a great unbundling of the corporation. A lot of firms are outsourcing increasing layer or increasing pieces of, of their internal operations to external firms. And I think that this is happening because the transaction costs due to software and the internet have just gone dramatically down. The other thing that I think is causing it is that there's a bunch of new fast growing companies that are starting that don't have an internal department that needs to be disrupted. And so you see things like Zenefits or Gusto or Flexport or, uh, ShipBob or any of these other sort of like what I would call like departmental level companies that are becoming the department for everybody, right? But you also see it in the, like very specifically in staffing, right? So there's a company Jive that is providing uh, staffing to grocers. Yeah. It's really interesting. There's another company called uh, like RigUp that's based in Austin that are, that's providing specialty talent to the oil and gas industry. And this to me is really interesting. It actually comes back to your point around underutilized human capital where basically you have these people that are, that are specialists or are otherwise not necessary at a hundred percent of a company's operations, but they're needed on, they're basically needed when they're needed and they're, they're, they're needed to a very high level. What happens in the past is that, you know, companies sort of kept these people on staff, right? Well, that's not great because the company's most likely not going to pay the person as much as they could otherwise be earning. Because most of the time they're not utilizing them, so they don't value them enough. And so now you have these staffing companies that basically say, okay, we're going to take this talent. You're going to use them only when you need them. And then we're going to bounce them around to the rest of the market yeah. to be used when they're needed in other places and take a rake as a result, right? Because they're going to increase the overall amount of economic activity happening. Yeah. The person's ideally going to make more money and they're going to be in an organization that fundamentally cares about them. Right. And that part I think is actually under, underrated is that if you are a software engineer at a company that makes software, you're like a hero. If you're a software engineer at a company that makes donuts, I don't know, like, you know, it's like the donut maker is the guy that, that, that is going to get the, the glory at a restaurant, for example. When you build these staffing firms, you basically take all these little vertical departments, create whole companies around them, make the labor utilization in the market more efficient, increase wages, and increase people's life satisfaction. Because, yeah. for example, if you are the best HR representative at a mega company, like at Google, you know, you're never going to move the bottom line to Google. Google's never, like, may, like maybe they, they do actually, Google is a bad example. They do, don't do some really good cool stuff in HR. But in most companies, like, the HR person is pretty undervalued, right. even if they are extremely useful. Mm-hmm. But if they're, if there's an HR staffing company, well, all of a sudden that person actually can be a star. Like their skill set is what matters to that company. Mm-hmm. And my, my guess is that you'll see those types of companies attract the best talent. Right? And that's a, a sort of positive uh, reinforcement system. You have the best talent, you offer the best service, you get more of the best talent, so on and so forth. So when you look at sort of, you know, understand the past of how, you know, the rise of corporation and, and labor, how does that sort of inform your views about the, the future, uh, you know, the next 50 years in terms of how we treat labor, how labor is treated, UBI, like automation. What do you, what do you think about that? I'm sort of in the, in, in Jason camp that automation winds up creating massive amounts of opportunity. There, you know, when I look at the past, uh, which is like, like, let's look at containerization, for example. Containerization is really interesting. First off, it's not that old, right? This is a technology that came about in like really the 1950s. Because when you look at that, you think like, wow, that must have been around forever. False. Like it's just like not that, not that old of technology on the, on the grand scale of humanity. And, but it did have a really, really rapid impact once it sort of started to get deployed is that, you know, port cities used to be massive employers, massive employers. People lived their whole lives basically doing break bulk, lugging stuff off of ships. And, and it was just this like massive industry. Containerization came in and, and sort of wiped all that out, or at least it had the possibility to wipe all that out. There were these unions though that sort of stopped the spread. And 
on the sort of libertarian bent in me would think, oh, you know, they're they're stifling innovation. Ah, stop it! Like let the let the the technology win. And I do I do feel that way. But on the other hand, the, what the unions really did was they slowed the rate of the technology, which is default bad, right? Like obviously, like you would prefer to have cheaper stuff. But at the same time, they they also slowed the rate of job loss such that the economy had more time to reconfigure itself. So I, I don't know how to how to weigh these against each other, right? Like we're so to do a concrete example here was that there was rules put in place by by unions during the rise of containerization that every container that came off the ship had to have all of its stuff taken out of it and put back in it, mm-hmm. and then it could go. It was literal make work to keep the the union employees employed. Yeah, I don't think any of those union employees enjoyed doing that, right? This is work literally for no reason. Right. They probably enjoyed the, the money, right? They did. They weren't out of a job as quite so fast. Uh, it was you know their writing is on the wall at that point. But this does sort of like slow the pace. I think that this is an acceptable thing that we can do in society is that in the case that innovation is happening too fast and people are losing their jobs too fast, that we can slow slow it down. On the other hand, that just is fundamentally not where we are in the American economy today. We have a labor shortage in most industries, particularly the industries that we think of as being, quote unquote, most ripe for automation and disruption. You look at trucking. I can't wait for automated trucks. Why? We have a tremendous labor shortage in trucking. It's not that the robots are going to sweep in and take all these jobs that people are desperate, so desperate to have. Is in fact, there's, there are, there's like hundreds of thousands of unfilled trucking positions. So if you think about what that means, that means that the demand for trucking is outstripping the supply of trucking. That means that the prices for trucking are higher than they should be, which means the prices of every single thing we consume is higher than they should be. You bring in robot trucks, they're going to go steal a bunch of jobs that people want. You're going to go fill a bunch of vacant positions. Eventually, you'll steal other people's jobs too. Steal, quote unquote, you're not stealing anything, right? Like disrupting those jobs. But there's lots of things, right? It's like there's lots of jobs that are being left unfilled that that I think automation will come in and fill. Yeah, totally. Uh, transition a little bit. I want to close with some of the, a couple of your, your sort of personal values um, that, that we've discussed and what you want to unpack them. One is uh, that uh, innovation is is synthetic. Can you talk about what that means? Yeah, I mean the word synthetic in in terms of the synthesis of things, mm-hmm. right? If you look back in history. It's often the case that the most interesting innovations come from sort of like random accidents, right? Or random collisions of different ideas, right? For example, even in a modern take, we are building software that is increasingly intelligent by taking learnings from biology. There's nothing inherently tied between programming silicon and understanding our human brains. But when you combine those two ideas together, you, you develop ideas around neural nets. Now, neural nets aren't actually specifically actual replicas of our brain. They're not. They're not even close. But those ideas, when merged together, are really interesting. And so for me, this, I, this is a, a, life, a life lesson because it means be divergent in your reading, be divergent in your thinking, right? Take things that don't necessarily make any sense together and try to smush them together and see what happens, yeah. right? Is you have novel ideas by combining novel concepts. Yeah. Right. If you can take things from biology or from music theory or from history of like religion and merge that into, you know, the modern day understanding of, of software engineering, I think most of the time you're going to come up with bad ideas. But every once in a while you're going to come up with really cool ideas. Yeah. And it's, it's just very rare that you have a stroke of insight that comes from nowhere, right? Like there is no miraculous birth of ideas. Right. It often is just the way that all births happen. The yeah. merger of two other ideas. Yeah. But sometimes when you merge two seemingly different ideas, you wind up with something that does look yeah. very novel. Yeah. On the other hand, it also means to me that whenever you see somebody that has like something wildly interesting, uh, some crazy idea, yeah. my guess is that they're just reading different things that I'm reading, or they're actually truly, there's something wrong with their brain, <laughs> um, which is also awesome. Right? Yeah. Like great, great, great ideas do sometimes come from people that are, that are less than normal. Totally. How about uh, relentlessly seek leverage? Uh, how do you apply that? Uh, how is that sort of personal value? So I found this is personal value f- to me. What it means is that in my life, I would like to find 
ways in which I can increase my impact and just do that over and over and over and over and over again, right? How can I increase my impact per unit of my effort? How do I move the world a little bit more than I could have with the same unit of, of, of effort? And for me, you know, this isn't right for everybody. This is right for me. And one of the ways that, one of the reasons why I care about this is because I, for example, love software engineering. I love doing it. I love sitting down and programming, but I don't do software engineering professionally because I sort of have this idea. Well, if I am a software engineer, then my output is one software engineer. I was then a product manager, which then meant that my output was my whole team worth of software engineers. I could take no credit for the work that they did. But as a product manager, I was helping guide vision and shape the direction of their work, which meant that in some capacity, I was able to have my ideas or my organization's ideas uh, brought to life with, you know, 10 or 20 or 50 engineers. Whereas if it was just me being a software engineer, I could only, you know, I could just do my, my one part. Um, and then I started leading product managers. And so now sort of my impact is the summation of those product managers whose impact is the summation of their design and engineering teams. And obviously, all everybody else gets all the credit, and they deserve it. Like the people that actually did the interesting work. But I'm able to shape a much broader set of human uh, activity and ambition by sort of trying to level myself up. Being bigger in an organization doesn't isn't necessarily the right way, right? Like even being a software engineer is itself a massive form of leverage, right? And one software engineer can write code that does the work of that would have required a million people, yeah. or an uneven uh, an impossible number of people, right? And so, like, these are ways in which you might see leverage. And to me, this is important because if, if I were to look back, if I sort of, like, think about what, what does my death look like and how, how, do, I, how do I feel, it's like, wow, I, the, the, really what I would like is to say, wow, I had a huge impact. And so walking back from having a huge impact, you have to ask yourself, well, how do you do it? And the only way to have an impact at a sort of globe-spanning level is to, to be seeking leverage, to do things that are high leverage activities, yeah. where one unit in does not equal one unit out. Yeah. You know, if you look at sort of the early employees at Flexport, not that I have deep insights of, but you can imagine that not all of them turned out to be VPs, and not all of them were, were relatively young VPs. How have you thought about age, if at all, or to others who are sort of young and early looking to rise up within a company, and to, to what do you credit your, your rise? I've been working for a long time. I started working when I was 13, and so I'm young, but relative to the, the tenure of, of me being in the professional world, I think I'm average. Mm-hmm. Right? Obviously, I wasn't working full-time in a corporation at 13. That didn't happen. But I was I was starting businesses, was running businesses. I was employed literally the moment I turned 15 and a half. And so for me, I, I look back and I say, well, look, I've actually been working for, for quite a long time. It was also that I wanted that. Yep. I, I, I like responsibility. I am intrigued. By being a leader, not everybody wants that. Yep. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I think one of the things that, that surprised me actually was when I joined Flexport, I had ambitions to be a product manager. So I was a software engineer. That was what they needed. But I wanted to be a product manager. And I thought, well, I'm going to be in competition with all these other software engineers that wanted to be product managers. And I wasn't. Yep. No other software engineers even wanted to do that. And then when I was, when I was the product manager, it then became very clear that I was going to become the head of product. Right? Because I was, I wanted that. I was willing to do that. And I put in the effort to do it. And, you know, the, the thing that I think is important to know is that at every point I felt pretty incompetent. Yeah. Right? Because at every point I was doing something I hadn't done before. But being incompetent doesn't mean that you can't learn. Right? It doesn't mean that you're incapable. It just means that you don't yet have the information that you need. Yeah. So, you know, being self-aware about where your competence level is and what your current requirements of your execution are. You know, if you could say, oh, shoot, I'm not so confident right now. I better go learn and just accept that as just your duty. Yep. Then I think you'll grow really fast. The worst thing is to, to hold yourself up and say, like, oh, I'm super confident. I got this and close yourself off and try to convince yourself that you got this when you don't. It, it's really about getting comfortable with kind of not being great at every yeah. at every turn, especially in a fast growing company. Right. Like, I don't think that I could have went and been a VP of product at, at Google or Facebook. Yeah. You don't think that I could run Facebook's product team right now. But I did think that I was the right person to run Flexport's product team because I had grown with it at institutional knowledge. And I was at every point leveling myself up with the right. organization. Yeah. And it's hard because at a fast growing company, the company is just growing underneath you. Yep. Right? It's one of the, if you're a software engineer at a fast growing company, the organization is growing above you. Yep. If you're a leader at a company, 
your title, assuming that you have a high title, is sort of going to remain the same, and everything is just blowing up beneath you. So yeah. you're not getting a promotion, but every six months your job is totally different. Yeah. And you have to be comfortable with reinventing your work uh, over and over and over again. And you, know, you do that by seeking mentorship and reading books yeah. and everything else. Yeah. In closing, why don't you talk about how you think about zero-sum thinking and non-zero-sum thinking, and why zero-sum thinking can be too problematic? Yeah, I think that so much of the arguments in the political realm, in companies, is in the world in general, comes from people either... It comes either from being in a zero-sum game, for which they do exist, or from people believing that they're in a zero-sum game when they're not, in fact, in a zero-sum game. Right? So the, the economy is not a zero-sum situation. Growth companies, you know, it's not zero-sum. Like there's, I think, a, an interesting logic to the fact that most growing companies don't have that much politics. It's because people perceive there to be an abundance of opportunity. Right. You don't need to fight tooth and nail with the guy next to you in order to get that next position because there's going to be a couple of them. Right? This happens in the economy as well, is that if you see other people getting stupendously rich and you don't see the opportunity to get it, you might think that they're stealing it from you. Right, or that you need to go and like fight them in order to get what they got. Yep. Um, but it's just not, you know, it's just not the case that that most situations are zero sum. Most situations are not zero sum, or at least they can be made to be not zero sum. Right? Like in, and if everybody could just sort of understand that every rich person on the planet did not steal their money, yep. that every politically powerful person did not coerce people to follow them, these things are sort of obvious, right? Yep. Um, I think that there would just be a hell of a lot less argument, right? Like when I think of what is the argument for capitalism versus communism, you know, communism is about distribution. Capitalism is not about distribution. Capitalism is about wealth generation. It's about how do we make more, right? And this is obvious if you really think about it. It's not, it's like if you boil it down, it's clear that if I take a log, I go and buy a log, right? It's a, 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 a general little stump, five bucks. Well, that $5 stump is worth $5. But if I'm an artisan, I can whittle it down and carve out a bear, a beautiful bear. And people value bears. People value my effort. And I turn that into a $100 work of art. People value that. And I've generated wealth. And so if we try to think, how can we turn situations where it feels like we're just arguing over distribution and actually figure out how can we create value in this situation? Not seize value, but create it. I make some and you make some. It's a win-win. If we can seek those opportunities in life, I think everybody will be far less angry and far more wealthy. It's a perfect place to close. Uh, Sean Lennon, this has been a great podcast episode. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. If you're an early-stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.